1: Hello, 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 guys, and welcome back to the Health and Wellness Connection podcast. This is your host, Dr. Barry. I want to thank you guys for coming back and kicking it with us for what I hope will be an entertaining and educational show. So for those who don't know, or this may be your first time listening, my name is Dr. Barry. I'm a board-certified emergency health. Um, emergency physician, I should say. And also, I'm a health and wellness physician and radio host. So I'm here today to bring you some of the latest topics that are kind of percolating in the health and wellness scene. You know, we focus on research-backed information, so we give you the real, authentic data straight from the sources we use. A lot of great sources, including medscape.com. We go also um, a lot of the um, um, various websites. Um, Harvard Health is a great one. Um, uh, healthline.com with a lot of great sites that are putting out information that we try to bring it to you guys in a very relatable and a very easy to digest format so you can hopefully take away those nuggets and pearls that will hopefully allow you to live a healthier and uh, more fulfilled lifestyle. Of course, we cover a, a wide breadth of topics, including you know travel, nutrition, um, various health um, issues. Of course, COVID has been big as of late, so we've been talking about a lot on that topic. But we hope to kind of keep it fresh and kind of really do a lot of variety of different areas as well Um, we also are going to have and we'll continue to have a lot of great hosts and uh, sorry a lot of great guests on the show um you know i'm fortunate enough to have a um a lot of cool people that i consider friends and you know a lot of times we bring them on the show to discuss various health topics as well so definitely be on the lookout for that we have a lot of great um interviews uh, we're lining up and we'll definitely keep you posted as those develop now so today's show is going to be kind of, you know, pretty interesting. We're going to talk about some interesting topics that are on the health landscape as of late, and we're going to kind of kind of explore those and see how, how or if they're going to affect um, the overall health and wellness um, of you and others. So um, the first topic, if you remember from last show, we talked about how monkeypox was the latest pandemic that was underneath the tongues of the diff- various uh, people out there in the health and wellness space. Uh, as we said before, monkeypox was a virus that had typically been, re- you know, located in Western Africa and uh, Central Africa and uh, had some issues for people and had recently spread to Europe. Uh, it actually started off in a, what was believed to be a, um, a um, musical event in Belgium and in Spain, and from there spread to different parts of Europe and as well as the United States. So as a result, it's getting more publications and uh, more attention in the public sphere there's been a new concern, though, about uh, the actual monkeypox quote unquote virus, and that is that the name may be a bit racist. Now, it's said that um, the monkeypox came because of the association with primates in the African uh, nations where it was initially discovered, and this is why um, the name was attached to this uh, virus because we believe some different primates in those areas were also had a similar virus that so they spread to the humans there. And, uh, and not that it's only uh, you know only found in primates, also found in rodents and you know, other animals, things like that. But the primates are obviously what the scientists decided to use the virus to name, and because of that, it's held that um, that name for a while now. So with this new spread, and new pandemic, um, giving the monkeypox more shine, the more focus is now being put on this name and whether or not it's a bit racist, if you will. Um, apparently, one of um, some of the leading researchers now are actually clamoring about this including uh, Christian Hoppe, actually the director of the African Center of Excellence for Genomics and Infectious Disease. This is at a famous or a large university located in Nigeria. And she actually was one of the main people driving uh, for the name change and they actually positioned the WHO and other um, world health bodies to consider, change the name to a virus, to a nomenclature that's not indicative of the location um, because sometimes these locations, Can be tied to different, you know, viruses, which are usually not, you know, pleasant experiences. I'm sure everybody remembers how COVID-19 was initially, you know, famously called the China virus by Donald Trump, who was president of the United States at the time, led to a lot of back and forth between ISIS and China, and end up um, leading to the current system of virus naming we have now, which is the 19, and on the numerical naming system as opposed to the location-based system. So that being said, because of this monkeypox naming and the uh, concern of some sort of racist attachment being attached to this virus, uh, it's now being proposed that they will also switch from monkeypox to now another n- name, um, numerical-based system to avoid you know, these potential negative connotations. So be on the lookout for that. You probably won't hear the name monkeypox much longer going forward. And uh, maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing. Maybe the monkeys will probably appreciate it. So either way, just uh, be on the lookout for that. Um, unique development. Alright, so enough about monkeypox. Now, of course, you know, despite you know these, these other viruses people have been looking at, you know, COVID is still the big daddy on the block. Still causing all that chaos and, 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 and uh, mayhem out here in these streets. Um, that being said, it has definitely uh, reduced especially the deadliness of the virus. Uh, I would say thankfully to the increased immunity in the populations globally. Now, of course, at this point, people have caught COVID multiple times or been vaccinated and boosted and everything else. So there's enough of the COVID um, kind of antigen in the system in the milieu of the populations across the globe that immunity is building and people are more resistant to COVID than they were earlier in the pandemic. So now that the COVID virus seems to be a little bit more um, uh, less uh, devastating to the populations, there's now concern about some of the after effects of the entire pandemic. Meaning, you know, when school was out for, for years, kids were at home more frequently. and That led to other issues and change in learning habits. Some kids were left behind and didn't really learn um, that well at home. And that's led to kids being um, academically, um, you know, behind some of their peers in other areas and so forth. So it was just a lot of um, social issues developed from that. And we're going to talk briefly about some of those and some of the scientific studies that are coming out that are showing some of the negative effects of our response to the pandemic and how it's potentially affecting some of the health and the wellness of our kids out here so let's talk about that so the first thing we saw is that it was a study recently came out um, and it showed that there was potentially some issues with decreased sleep being seen in children as a result of the covid pandemic now a recent uh investigator um came but a recent report, and this is out of the Center of Health Sciences at SR International uh, in Menlo Park, California, they um, came up with a report stating that they saw a pretty concerning decline in um, sleep due to increased screen time, meaning in front of tablets and phones and different computer devices. Um, and these um, decreased sleep patterns were being noted in kids, substantially increased during the pandemic because of the increased online activities and social platforms that happened at an extremely rapid pace during the pandemic. Now, I could be honest, you know, I have uh, two children and during this pandemic, they were pretty much on roadblocks <laughs> for more more time than I would uh, like to admit. And I'm sure a lot of parents uh, could probably share the same sentiment. Now, you know, when you're home all day and school's been uh, shut down, uh, the tablet is a fairly convenient way for kids to distract themselves. And unfortunately, that may have happened, you know, in an, an excessive degree resulting in potentially kids being sleep deprived. Now, everyone knows that children should be getting about eight to ten hours of sleep per night. This is believed to be the optimal time that kids can regenerate and their brains can be ready to take on the next day. And you know, kids are active learning sponges, so their brains need to be in tip top shape so they can really develop and become healthy, you know, stable adults. So, sleep is a critical portion of that. And for adults, too, by the way, not just children, now adults do need less sleep, but they still. Um, do these sleep. Kids though, sleep is critical, especially as they're learning and growing. So sleep deprivation is believed to potentially, could have many very negative side effects, including learning ability um, being potentially affected, and cognitive function may be potentially affected as well. So this sleep deprivation we're seeing as a result of increased screen time, which has occurred due to this pandemic and some of the changes in behavior, it's a bit concerning. So. That being said, um, you know, this study showed that... So, the study show that during the first year of the pandemic, relative to before the pandemic, screen time was dramatically higher, with adolescents spending about 45 minutes on average more on social media and about 20 minutes more playing video games. This resulted in a change in sleep pattern, of course, where you have kids waking up about one and a half hours later than they were during the pre-pandemic. And also... Um, they were noticing that bedtimes were being delayed by about an hour. So um, ultimately, you know, sleep patterns being negatively affected can have long-term effects. Um, so just want to be careful, spe- especially if you have young children, making sure that their you know screen time is being monitored. Um, some of the good the ways you can do that is some of these parental locks, which I know the kids don't appreciate, but can help reduce them. You know, being kind of unlimited on the screen by making sure it's locked after a certain time usage so again um, pandemic is doing a lot of things to people outside the actual infection itself especially when it affects our life um, activity and so forth so another thing as a result of pandemic behavior another study showed that there was an increased risk for overweight and obesity in adults and children as a result of pandemic behaviors so what happened was, um, there was, is it what happened? was that actually a real thing? <laughs> what had happened was, no, let me um, be correct here. So a recent study came out. It was actually done out of France, actually. Um, it was actually done at the Mother and Child Welfare Department um, in uh, France, and they looked at their population as far as how they um, were behaving during the COVID period, especially the children that were being monitored in this um, area, part of France, so they looked at the, the, the I guess the, mo- the mothers and children who were receiving welfare they looked at how they behaved as far as their height and weight statistics. I guess they monitor that in their programs. They were able to look at, you know, the height and weight of various children during the pandemic, after the pandemic, and they were looking at how those numbers changed. And they saw that during the first year of the study, before the pandemic began, right? They noted that about 86% of the children were neither overweight or obese. So most of them fairly healthy, which is pretty high. I mean, 86% is pretty, pretty good numbers. I think those are much better than here in the United States as far as the average um, uh, rate of obesity. Um, Again, in this case, um, this would give you about a 13% obesity rate, which is pretty good. But either way, so um, 86% of the children were not obese um, before the pandemic. And they noted that after the pandemic occurred, uh, they, the numbers increased by about 3%. So 3% of the children became obese, uh, which is still pretty decent, honestly. Um, I think here in the United States, we have approximately, according to CDC, about a 19% uh, obesity rate amongst the children. So h- higher here, but you know definitely significant. So in France, where this study was done, this, they noted in their study that the obesity rate increased about 2.8%, roughly 3%. Um, so it's definitely concerning that um, that this obesity um, was becoming more of a problem as a result of uh, the pandemic. Now, another thing they looked at, they kind of broke down the numbers more specifically, looking at boys versus girls. And they did note too that girls actually had an increased risk for becoming overweight during this pandem- during the pandemic period. Also, they noted that eating at a cafeteria reduced the risk for overweightness and during the same period. So. Those kids, maybe some districts went to school, right? Maybe some stayed home, some kids stayed home. And those who went to school who who only ate during their period in the cafeteria tend to have a decreased risk of obesity. However, those who are, I'm assuming at home and were eating whenever they wanted to, i.e. snacking and just eating throughout the day, actually had a higher risk of becoming obese. So it kind of showed that, you know, the reduction of physical activity combining um, with the increase in snacking and consumption, uh, especially of processed products, also helped promote obesity. So, you know, this study kind of showed that there was a very strong association between being overweight and being obese. And, uh, you know, some of these these bad activities like being increasingly sedentary, uh, uh, not actually, you know, regulating how often you're eating, all those played a role in increasing the level of obesity. Um, And this just was done like I said, in France, but these are kind of, these kind of um, associations can probably be played to most of the Western world where processed foods are plentiful. So overall, you know, the pandemic definitely affected the population outside of the actual infection, just kind of how our lifestyles change, resulting in more health issues due to these, you know, potential, you know, bad side effects of these lifestyle changes. So let's be conscious of that and make sure if you have young kids, you're getting them active. I know now most people are back to normal routine, so hopefully those um, those activities that are gonna promote a healthier lifestyle are being implemented. All right, now another great thing about the pandemic, or I should say thing that kind of benefited the population as opposed to hurting it, was that there was a concern or an or, or a um, awareness of the importance of improved infrastructure in helping reduce some of these um, issues, especially we faced during the COVID pandemic. It was found that during the pandemic a very um, um hotbed of transmission if you will for the virus was the schools um the kids who t- who actually got covid many times were had milder infections so they were able to walk around coughing and sneezing and spreading you know uh, viruses like kids uh, so so um excellently do <laughs> anyone who knows who has kids knows that kids can definitely be very effective at sneezing and coughing and spreading germs around so you know, we had that kind of environment in the school setting where you have a lot of kids who are, who are potentially sick. You have people potentially who are also high risk in these same populations, including older individuals and people who may have um, illnesses that, you know, may potentially make them a higher risk candidate if they were to contract COVID, um, made it kind of a tricky environment to kind of manage. And one of the issues that was really found to be of issue is that there was very poor air quality in many of these school buildings. Now, the average U.S. school building is about fifty years old, right, and many of them date back to more than a century. So, it's clear that many of them are not pretty, are not, are likely not very well upgraded. One of the big things that has been found to be very important is the air quality, and the ways you can, you know, help improve that, and that's usually done is by, you know, having very high, um, I won't say high tech, but just want to have sophisticated air filtration systems, right? Systems that are, you know, things you see on the on the airline systems, for instance, where it's a small amount of air that's recycled and cleaned and they use systems to help keep the, you know, virus load in the air lower so they can reduce reduce disease transmission. Now in the school setting where you have, you know, these viruses that like COVID and other bugs that are spread via the air, having these air filtration systems in the schools could help reduce, you know, air particles in the air, which can, you know, reduce transmission to other people. And maybe keeping some of the more at-risk individuals who tend to work in these schools, like older teachers or other administrators and things like that, you know, from potentially getting more ill as a result of their job. So the CDC, you know, put out a report saying that you know these schools are under; um, um, they're they're basically not developed to the standard that will make them safe, and that it's important that we kind of increase the level of schools with you know HEPA air filters in their. Um, air ducts to help reduce, you know, these viral loads in the air and just kind of make it a safer environment. And they found that only less than 40% had actually replaced or upgraded their systems, their AC systems, to actually accommodate these um, new filters. So um, a lot of money was was being allocated for this to actually actually happen now. Um, It's believed that $13 billion for schools in the latest 2020 Coronavirus Act, Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, sorry, would be put in. And they're going to put more money in there another 54 billion actually so for only schools so they're making sure that you know they're going to get schools upgraded so that this covet issue can hopefully not be such a dangerous situation for people in various school settings so um one of the good things about COVID, and it's one thing about uh for those who are in the united states especially infrastructure has been an issue and uh you know things like the pandemic has exposed some of the inadequacies of the infrastructure hopefully you will see more development more kind of focusing on improving the infrastructure so that it can be a safer environment for those who are in it, especially the schools, as you know, the children are our future, as they say. So let's hope this goes through and that we have newer schools with better air air systems so that kids aren't, you know, um, able to get so sick so easily as a result of attending classes. All right, guys, so moving on, there's another interesting study that came out that looked at some of the potential benefits of bariatric surgery. Now, as you guys know, that I'm a health and wellness physician, and I like to focus on non-surgical methods of weight loss. Now, meaning that you know nutrition, you know, being more active, physical fitness, um, some of the critical things you need to do to ensure that you are improving your health and wellness. Because again, when you're losing weight and you're getting healthier, it's kind of a, a holistic approach, right? You start with the mental. And you continue the activity changes until the entire physical changes into uh, what you're looking to achieve. Now, and this is not just superficial, meaning that if you go to surgery, you get like liposuction, you get fat s- sliced off here, trimmed there. You know, there's still inner body fat that's actually you cannot trim, and it can actually be potentially deceptive, right? If you had, you know, let's say, you have fat buildup in your plaques and your in your blood vessels which can happen when your you know lipid levels are high and you only focus on the external you can potentially potentially deceive yourself and it may look healthier than you actually are and again you know it's just uh, the way you had to, as far as the way the body works losing weight naturally can definitely be a healthy way especially when it comes to long-term health benefits now short-term you know definitely people do still do pie surgery and that's something that i think should be um um an option if you think that that could help as far as achieving your goals you're trying to set. But bariatric surgery is something that has been actually recommended from a medical standpoint, in the sense that if you're someone who has a critical amount of weight, or you have a very severe illness tied to uh, morbid obesity, um, bariatric surgery can kind of give a jump start to people who have um, a significant trouble in losing weight um, with simply diet and exercise. Now we know that obesity is extremely um, you know, prevalent illness and is responsible for a lot of deaths in the United States, about 300,000 lives a year is believed uh, to be lost per year due to obesity, so much so that it's considered now an epidemic. Now, um, obesity is being linked to many illnesses, but it's a major contributor to both cardiovascular disease as well as uh, multiple types of cancers. Now, cancers that are very commonly associated with obesity include colorectal cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, liver cancer, multiple myeloma, and others. Now, these things have been associated with um, obesity through various studies that have actually shown that if you are obese, you're at increased risk of these various cancers. So it's always been you know, figured out to determine if you can reduce obesity, right, then you can actually reduce cancer. And so they've actually used bariatric surgery as a way to kind of prove this. Well, because you know that if you do bariatric surgery, you're gonna lose weight because they're actually technically reducing the size of your stomach, making it just impossible, very difficult for you, I should say, to actually overeat. This will result in reduced calorie intake, which will definitely result in, you know, weight loss. Now, as a result, um, you know, people um, have, they have a, a set of people who they've studied, who they've done surgery on, and they can look at their risk of developing cancer over a time frame to determine if those people who got the surgery and lost weight ended up having lower incidence of cancer. And this is what this recent article that came out that appeared in the latest episode of, or episode, <laughs> the latest um, journal article from the JAMA, with the Journal of American Medical Association which is a very uh, popular, very prevalent medical um, um, medical uh, journal uh, service. So either way they looked at data from the Cleveland Clinic, which is a very big and popular clinic in the United States, looked at a, stu- a study, a group of about 5,000 people who underwent bariatric surgery, and they matched them to about 25,000 people who did not go underneath surgery, meaning these people had a certain characteristics that was very similar across the board. So there were similar age, similar BMI, right? Similar uh, sex, you know, race. They had a similar mix of all those other factors. The main factor was some people underwent surgery, right? Some people did not so those who went underwent surgery they looked at their risk of developing those various cancers we mentioned that are associated with um, obesity like colorectal cancer breast cancer ovarian cancer liver cancer and the the rest and looked at those who did not go through surgery right so they found that those who actually went through surgery had a dramatically lower risk of developing those cancers they found that those who went bariatric surgery actually had a 30 percent reduction in obesity associated cancer with a nearly 50% reduction in cancer-associated mortality. So this is big news, guys. So that means that if you had lost weight, the risk of you developing so many different cancers had dropped so much that it resulted in a very significant life expectancy. I mean, this is something that, you know, we kind of assumed, but definitely showed that, you know, weight loss, um, you know, ideally, naturally, but even through baritone surgery, can have very significant medical health benefits, especially when it goes to cancer prevention. I mean, this is almost as 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 effective as you know getting heavy smokers to quit so and getting the, the, that reducing their risk of lung cancer so um you know obesity the risk it cannot be stressed enough that it's associated with a lot of different illnesses and you know losing weight can have a lot of ramifications from not only potentially um you know improving how you feel or you look if you will but also it also can help reduce your risk of death from various cancers in this bariatric study you know, as showing some possible credence to that. Now, that being said, some people say that because the study, you know, looked at people who had bariatric surgery, they tend to be more motivated anyway. If you're getting surgery, you're probably going to be more serious about what you're eating, especially after the fact you're going to be more focused on working out, you know, and, and that's probably played a role in why they became so much more healthier. Those who didn't get surgery, they probably gained weight, maybe weren't as careful could have led to them, you know, being at high risk for, for cancers and so forth that being said you know the numbers still are something fairly dramatic and I think it could be a you know another proof that you know health and wellness is very important it can help reduce a lot of issues you know and nothing's guaranteed you can still do all this stuff and still get sick still die or whatever but ultimately I think improving the odds is never a bad idea right so if you want to do something if you know that's gonna potentially help improve the odds in a certain way that you favor then go for it now if you're someone who doesn't who wants to you know that <laughs> you hurt yourself then that's probably the whole issue in itself and I suggest you go to your local emergency room and, and tell your local physician to, uh, you know, help intervene so you don't do anything to yourself. But ultimately, you want to, you know, do things that are going to help improve your health and wellness, right? So, you know, losing weight is sh- many different studies now showing the importance of how it can help reduce their cancer risk and, you know, heart re- heart attack risk all the other goodies. So, all right, guys. So let's focus on, you know, getting your health and wellness in order. All right, guys. So another interesting study came out talking about... Testosterone replacement. Now, testosterone replacement is something that is being done all across the globe. Actually, it's believed that testosterone has had, um, you know, a lot of potentially negative information put out about it. Um, various studies in the past have potentially linked testosterone use um, with increased risk of stroke and heart attack and other potential very dangerous issues. Now, as a result, it's been very controversial as far as testosterone replacement. Uh, which is something that many men across the globe use to help treat a condition known as hypogonadism the hypogonadism is essentially low testosterone levels which can lead to um, lower rates of sexual enjoyment for men as well as sexual drive so it's something that obviously is very important to many men and as a result many men have resorted to actually using testosterone as a hormone replacement to help kind of keep those areas um, going now That being said, because of the concern for potential side effects, it's been actually very controversial and many studies have been been used to try to figure out if this is safe or not as far as testosterone therapy. Now the, um, you know, many studies are going on right now, but one recent study has just came out. This actually came out of the UK. Um, One of the lead researchers, Gemma Hudson of Aberdeen University, published a recent article in The Lancet, there's another very prestigious journal. Um, talking about testosterone and potential links with heart attacks, strokes, and other issues. So what they did was they actually looked at various studies where they were looking at testosterone use for treating hypogonadism and looking at you know, patients who were actually using the, the um, hormone replacements and seeing about if they were at increased risk for cancer or, sorry, heart attack and stroke. Now this study looked at about three thousand four hundred patients, and um, you know looked at people who who were using these uh, treatments um, for a period of about nine and a half months after starting hormone therapy. And it was found that um, in these patients who were, in these actually were older set of patients about sixty-five and up who were using hormone therapy for hypogonadism, about three thousand four hundred people followed them after the period of of the study started starting about nine and a half months, and they found that there was really no significant risk of heart attack or stroke in these patients. So, um, you know, that definitely is a positive uh, result for those who are interested in using hormone therapy because it's always believed that, you know, those issues who are, or people who are using the hormone therapy are at increased risk of fairly different um, concerning medical ailments, including heart attack and stroke. At least that was the belief but now studies like this are showing that it may be actually safer, um, and uh, maybe something that could be considered without the concern of those potentially dangerous side effects. Now, that being said, it, it is well known that testosterone can increase the thickness of your blood, right? Um, and actually, that thickness of your blood can actually increase the risk of, you know, thromboembolisms or even strokes. So it's something that you know most people who are treating patients for. You know, with hormone therapy, are aware of, and they're making sure they prevent those via various, via various different treatment strategies. But um, you know, if you're someone or a man, for instance, looking at considering testosterone, you want to definitely make sure you're working with uh, a clinician who's aware of the ways to manage it. It's something that you want to be very careful because there are some definitely issues potentially associated with this, but there are some definitely benefits as well. And I think that the, the science is still being researched. There's another big study coming out in about five years that'll tell us more definitively because it's a bigger study with pe- bigger people behind it. But you know, some of the initial data we're seeing, especially from these studies that we're seeing, like the one I'm just reading today, a little bit smaller, but definitely showing that there is, you know, potentially some benefits without all those potential side effects, or oh, sorry, the, the potential concerns for stroke that we were seeing or concerned about. And that could potentially bode well for testosterone um, hormone users as far as their risks and their potential side effects. So we'll keep following this and we'll let you know if there's anything more concerning that comes out regarding, um, you know, these issues. All right, guys. So one more interesting topic I want to talk about today. And it's, you know, kind of interesting, especially if you're a guy, because one of the big things that many men have always concerned themselves or were worried about is the idea of a male birth control pill now imagine if you were a guy right and you were worried about essentially you know impregnating somebody that you weren't maybe not that serious with now some would argue you probably shouldn't be having intercourse with somebody you don't want to have a child with but things will happen so i know men have always lamented the fact that there's no way they can control their ability to impregnate somebody meaning that if they don't use a condom for instance Uh, which you probably should be using if you don't (laughs) want to impregnate somebody but you know things happen so you know they've always asked at least men have always you know i don't i've been posed the question many times is there a way that a man can potentially you know reduce their risk for impregnation of other individuals without doing surgery now currently the main way that if you want to have you know unprotected sex with individuals and not potentially risk impregnating them The main way you can do that now is actually a vasectomy. Um, Unfortunately, many men or others are not interested in in surgery and a reversible method has always been um, the goal of many uh, scientists in this area. So in in the current climate, there does not exist, but there are a couple pills that actually are very promising as far as potentially giving the functionality of acting as a male, um, um, a male um, birth control pill. So there are two drugs currently being evaluated, and uh, the research is currently being kind of assessed on these uh, drugs to see whether or not they're safe and whether or not they can achieve, you know, safe contraceptive use for men. So this will probably, you know, make a lot of you know women excited in the sense that they now won't be the main people, for, you know, where all the pressure is, if you will, as far as whether or not um, conception occurs after intercourse. Now, the way these drugs are going are designed to work is that they're essentially gonna be designed to suppress the production of testosterone. And it's believed that if you reduce the testosterone levels to a certain amount, it will make the sperm less potent and able to impregnate. Um, so, ultimately, when the testosterone levels are very low, it's gonna reduce your sperm count, I should say. The sperm count becomes so low, then it becomes essentially, you know, <laughs> non-viable if you will so you really can't impregnate anyone if the sperm counts drop to a certain level. So the goal of these pills is to suppress the sperm production so that when you suppress it then the, the gentleman can ejaculate and there'll be very low risk of impregnation. Now one thing about sperm is that it has a half-life of about three months. So essentially if you've been, you've been your body's making sperm and it's lasting about three months before it essentially is comes out or, or is no longer viable. So you have to take the pill for about three months before you start, you know, having a sperm that, you know, is non-viable. So uh, it would definitely take a very diligent individual, you know, it's not something you can pop a pill before or after intercourse and stop a pregnancy. If you're a guy you gotta be planning ahead. So you gotta be taking this pill daily for three months. And then after the end of the third month, then you could potentially, you know, be at a point where you could have intercourse And not impregnate. That being said, because this pill is actually designed to suppress testosterone, there's a good chance you may not even want to have sex at that point. So, because you're, so, because the witch kind of is funny because the the previous time we talked about, as far as, you know, the people who have, have hypogonadism, which is an actual issue where your testosterone levels are low, so you're actually giving yourself testosterone because they want to have more intercourse. Those who are not not trying to have kids are essentially going to turn themselves into <laughs> people who have hypogonadism. Now, that being said, the idea of this treatment, though, that's actually one of the study points that they mentioned, is that they're actually trying to prevent hypogonadism. So, it's a fine line here. You're gonna you're gonna try to you know walk here in a sense that you're gonna take a, a medication that suppresses your testosterone to lower your sperm count, so you won't get pregnant, but at the same time keep your sex drive high enough. So, you want to have sex even though you're, you're trying not to get pregnant. So, it's just a lot of, you know, ba- signs going on here. It may be safer just to not, you know, abstain from sex, you know. <laughs> but if you're determined to have unprotected sex, which I don't advise, by the way, use a condom, is probably the best way to go about things, especially for now. But if you're excited about this birth control pill, keep in mind that it may reduce your sex drive overall. But at least you won't have kids if that is the ultimate goal. And ideally, this should be reversible. So, you may be potentially. You know, if you're focused on maybe doing something you don't want to even think about sex, this could be an option for you maybe. Now, that being said, if you're not having sex, you probably won't impregnate somebody. So if you're just maybe disciplined, you could probably do a lot. So, you know, the pill definitely has its issues so far, especially three month thing, but at least, you know, it's an option for men who are excited about controlling their ability to impregnate. Cause that is an issue many men have complained about. So this could definitely, I think, find some, some suitors. So we'll be on to look out as far as details as far as these pills, um, they're still in research phase, so this is probably not too close uh, uh, to coming to the market, but there's definitely some you know, promising signs that these pills could potentially be an option for those who are looking at You know, taking a pill so that they may, will not be potentially um, able to impregnate people if that's what they want to do. So that is all for that story. And. You know, we're at the end of the show, guys. So I just want to thank you again for listening uh, to the Health and Wellness Connection. You know, we try to get these articles, you know, prepped and and, uh, try to get them ready for you guys. So if there's anything you want us to talk about, please uh, let us know. We're always here to try to answer some questions and try to be a source for you guys. Um, Again, I'm Dr. Barry, host of the show. Um, Reach out to me, guys, by email if you have any questions, drbarryhealth at gmail.com. We'll be doing a lot of great, great things, guys. We have a lot of great plans. Um, We're doing some great building right now, so please stay tuned for some of the exciting developments we have for our show. Again, um, any questions, reach out. Also on Instagram, at DrBerryMD, and Facebook. My Facebook account was um, potentially a shutdown, so I had to start a new one. So just um, feel free to um, follow me on Facebook if you find me. Uh, I am there. So that is it. So if you have any questions, um, we'll be here. Uh, Send us an email. We will be quick to respond again your host Dr. Barry see you next time peace
0: thank you listening to the health and wellness connection podcast and radio show for more information on ways to get healthy please check us out www.anchor.fm forward slash hw connection here you can re-listen to the show check out older shows and even further support the show by becoming a subscriber to the podcast please check us out today again that's anchor.fm forward slash hw connection and also don't forget to follow dr barry on instagram at dr Until next time, stay healthy.